Hey, this is Robert Mason, the Ringer NFL Show. Even though the Super Bowl is over, free agency, the combine, and the draft are all right around the corner, and the Ringer NFL Show will have you covered, bringing everything you need to know. You can subscribe to the Ringer NFL Show at iTunes.com slash The Ringer or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh, and I'm a writer for TheRinger.com. And on the other line, if you want to start your 11th inning with a runner on second, you'll have to go through him first. It's my <laughs> Ringer colleague, Michael Bauman. Hey, Michael. Hello. We won't even discuss. There's a lot of stuff we're leaving proposals. on the table. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to get you too worked up. We have a whole episode to do. Later in the show, we'll be talking to Twins pitcher Glenn Perkins, about pitchers and catchers reporting and his return from injury and the foreword he wrote in the Baseball Prospectus Annual, which is not something you can say about many active players. But a couple things before we get to that. First, just an update on a few of our former guests. Last week's guest, Craig Breslow, did get a job shortly after that episode came out. He's going to be pitching with the Twins. He'll be a, a teammate of Glenn Perkins. Jerry DePoto, our old friend, made a trade, of course. His 12th of the offseason, he traded Jesus Sucre to the Rays. No song, I don't think. Nah, it doesn't even register. I forgot that happened. Very minor. And our guest from earlier this offseason, David Rollins, was designated for assignment again. He was the pitcher who had been claimed five times this winter. Sadly for him, the Cubs traded for Alec Mills from the Royals. And to clear space for him, they designated Rollins for assignment. So he now needs to be claimed a sixth time to make it to another team this season. Yeah. So what we're going to do before we get to these interviews is play what I've been referring to ominously over the past couple of weeks as the game. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> this is, uh, I, I told uh, another former guest of ours, Meg Riley, what I was doing. And she said, are you trying to get Ben to kill you in some sort of weird mur- murder-suicide game? So, I'm so apprehensive about this because usually I wouldn't say this podcast is rehearsed. It's kind of off the cuff, but we at least know basically what we're doing and which people we're talking to. And this time I know nothing about this. I am flying without instruments. This could be anything. Okay. So this is going to be the last podcast that goes up before the start of college baseball season, which I know you don't care at all about. (laughs) So in lieu of lobbying for any sort of comprehensive preview or, you know, interview with a coach or a major college baseball writer, we're going to play college baseball player figure from American history or character played by Nicolas Cage. So I'm going to read you a name and you need to tell me if he's a college baseball player, a figure from American history or a character played by Nicolas Cage. All right. Has Nicolas Cage played any figures from American history or any college baseball players? I don't think he's played any college baseball players. I'm sure he's played somebody from American history. I don't know. National Treasures based on a true story, right? (laughs) Totally. Okay. Okay. Here we go. All right. First name, Caster Troy. Ooh, Caster Troy. I'll say figure from American history. That is incorrect. He was Nicolas Cage in Face Off. Oh, (laughs) okay. Jameson (laughs) Hanna. Oh, that sounds like a college baseball player. That is a college baseball player. That's an outfielder for Dallas Baptist. Ford Proctor. History. Nope. He is the shortstop for Rice. (laughs) You're batting batting 333 right now. This is is pretty good so far. 
Sherman McMaster. Hmm. See, now we're getting into the the part where I feel like the category that hasn't been chosen is due. Trying to read your mind here. I'll say American history. He is a figure from American history. He was a member of the Earp Vendetta ride after the gunfight at the OK Corral. All right. Batting 500. Yeah. Next one, Antoine Duplantis. (laughs) I'm going to say not Nicolas Cage character. College baseball player? He is a college baseball player. He is a outfielder for LSU. (laughs) Are these draft prospects or are these just random players you picked out? Some of these guys are pretty good. Hannah and Duplantis, and there's another guy coming up later, are all probably going to play in the big leagues, but they're sophomores. So I don't, Uh since they're not like... Alex Fayeto or something, I wouldn't expect you to to even have heard of them. Um, Would you expect me to have heard of Alex Fayeto? A little bit. You know, he might go number one overall. <laughs> I'll, I'll hear about draft people when the draft gets a little closer. Okay. That's how I typically approach this. All right. So I know there's at least one more college baseball player on the board. So I will file that little tidbit away. All right. Bushrod Washington. <laughs> Bushrod. American history? That is correct. Whew. Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, nephew of George Washington. Oh, of course. You're doing really Bushrod. well. You're doing way better than I expected you to. <laughs> I'm doing better than one would expect by random chance, yeah. which is basically what I'm what I'm going for here. All right. Hagen Owenby. College baseball player. Correct. Catcher, East Tennessee State. All right. Memphis Reigns. Memphis Reigns. Nicholas Cage? That's correct. What movie? Gone in 60 Seconds. Ah, all right. That's a great name. That's a very yeah. movie name. Colton Hathcock. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, Colton is an extremely baseball name. So I, I guess I'll go with college baseball player. That's correct. Right-handed pitcher, <laughs> University of Memphis. Oh, all right. I'm sorry, Colton. <laughs> Guyon Bluford. College baseball? Incorrect. Figure from American ah. history. He was the first African-American astronaut. Oh, okay. Cool. All right. Jonathan India. Nicholas Cage? Incorrect. Third baseman, University of Florida. Future, Oof. I would bet money that he becomes an extremely annoying second baseman for the St. Louis Cardinals at some point. Just He is already annoying me. All right. Increase Sumner. American history? Correct. Governor of Massachusetts, 1797 to 99. Yeah. Sumner is about the most yeah. American history name I, I can imagine. All right. Rayford Steele. <laughs> Nicholas? That is correct. Rayford Steele <laughs> was Nicholas Cage's character in Left Behind. <laughs> yeah. All Nicholas Cage characters have appropriately Nicholas Cage names. Can't just have Mark Smith be a Nicholas Cage character. All right. Next up, Montana Quigley. College baseball? That's correct. Right-handed pitcher Valparaiso. We'll pause here. Valpo has the most ridiculous names for pitchers because uh-huh. uh, Montana Quigley will share the Valpo pitching staff with Easton Roadhouse and <laughs> and Michael Mommersteeg. <laughs> and Hayden Man. Kissy. So they kind of, I don't know what they're doing there. Names are the best part of the draft. Yes. All right. So we're up to that's 10 correct. You're you're gonna right. be broken even. All right. Wade Hampton. Wade Hampton. That sounds very baseball-y. I'm going baseball. That is not a baseball player. That is a Confederate Ooh. Civil War general you after whom everything in South Carolina is named. <laughs> All right. Good one. Good deke. You got me. Gunner Troutwine. All right. Gunner, very baseball name. I'm going baseball. Catcher, Wichita State. <laughs> All, right. All right. John Rave. Nicholas Cage? Incorrect. 
outfielder, Illinois State. (laughs) Okay. Stanley Goodspeed. Oh, that's that's a Nicolas Cage character. Yeah, that's The Rock. Yeah, that's one I actually know. Okay, I thought I thought you might know the the Cage ones. What I wanted to do was character from the Star Wars extended universe, but oh, like yeah, that's something playing you right do into know my about. hands. Yeah, yeah. All right, two left. Web Bobo. <laughs> American history. Incorrect. Outfielder, <sighs> southeastern Louisiana, and the reason I didn't put Cameron Poe on there <sighs> from Con Air. All right, last one. Brock Death Rage. Baseball. That is correct. Outfield, <laughs> North Carolina State. So 13 for 20. I got to make this harder next time. I'm pretty happy with that. Yeah. That's I, like I was I was expecting to have to talk you up after you got like, I don't know, seven or eight. But yeah, I was expecting to embarrass myself somehow, but I'm feeling pretty good. All right. All right. That was fun. Mm-hmm. Hope you enjoyed playing along at home. All right. We'll be right back after a quick message from our sponsor. As important as home security is, it shouldn't come at the expense of signing your life away via a confusing long-term contract. Thankfully, there's a smarter way to protect your home. Simply Safe Home Security. These are the guys you should trust. Built by a Harvard-educated engineer to make you safer, Simply Safe provides professional monitoring with police dispatch so your home is safe around the clock. Plus, it's wireless and portable with a cellular connection built in, so there are no lines that can be cut by potential intruders. You can even download the Simply Safe app free on your iPhone or Android smartphone and take control of your security remotely. And with Simply Safe, 24-7 protection is just 15 bucks a month. So you get superior service for almost a third of what most places charge. Best of all, there are no annual contracts and no middlemen, so you're not locked into anything. It's unbeatable protection, a great value with no contracts. So protect your home the smart way. Visit simplysafe.com slash ringer to get 10% off your system today. Go now. That's simplysafe.com slash ringer. All right. As you know, pitchers and catchers are reporting to spring training all over Florida and Arizona this week. But Glenn Perkins reported to spring training quite a while ago. Unfortunately for him, he's been in Florida working his way back from a torn labrum and surgery to repair it. Of course, he's been with the Twins for many years. He's pitched in the majors for 11 seasons and he's joining us now. Hey, Glenn. Well, how's it going, guys? It's going well. Neither of us is rehabbing a surgery. I was so. going to say, when when you said un, unfortunate, did you mean the part about the torn labrum or the part about him being in Florida? Yeah, maybe both. Well, but. It's, it's, there's, there's, a, there's a bunch of edges to this sword. And uh, the, I guess the, the good edge is that I'm in Florida, which is beautiful every day. Uh-huh. Well, being from Minnesota, living in Minnesota, it's, it's not ideal right now. So that's cool. My family's there, which is, is the one edge of the sword that sucks. Being away from them is hard, but... Uh, I mean, baseball, I mean, it isn't, it isn't my top priority. I mean, it's obviously, it's very important. Family is there and, and, and those things, but uh, I need to be here to prepare. And I've felt for a long time that I have an obligation to this team to honor my contract and, and what they're paying me to do work. And I didn't do any work last year and got paid a lot of money. And so it's kind of my way of committing to them in the same way that they committed to me. And then, and then obviously the other edge of the sword that, that is also very sharp and sucks is rehabbing a torn labrum, which has not been uh, super fun as I think you could imagine. <laughs> yes. What's the, you know, we, we know what uh, torn labor means sort of in baseball terms, but you know, what does that mean just for your day to day getting dressed in the morning, putting groceries away, stuff like that? How does that affect your, I mean, before I had the surgery, there was a lot of things that I would do that, that aggravated my shoulder. And I mean, truthfully, you get accustomed just, being a pitcher in general, and even when I was healthy, you get used to doing things and not using that arm. I've gotten very good at, you know, holding things with my right hand and I'm cutting a a vegetable. I'm going to hold it with my right hand and cut with my left hand so I don't cut my left finger off. 
and used to not doing stuff with that arm, with that hand, just as a safety precaution in general. But there were things that, like, I, I just wouldn't think about, like, it, it, shutting a car door. Like, I would get out of the car, and I would go, like, you know, to walk behind the car, and I would go shut the door. And, like, as I was shutting, I was like, oh, crap. Like, it, it would, it would like, shoot pain. And so things like that. And, I mean, honestly, since I've had a surgery, even that stuff has been a lot better. I mean, after, like, the first month, it, you know, six weeks, it all that, like, I felt completely normal, which I've told a lot of people is the hardest part because, you feel like you can do everything, but I still couldn't throw a baseball. I was still three and a half months away from throwing a baseball. So it's like, you feel good, but you still can't, you know, I'd sit and watch games. I'm like, man, I wish I could be out there. I feel like I could be out there and it, you can't. And, and so it got really hard in that respect after I had the surgery. But as of now, I mean, I, I do anything and everything that I would normally do. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I'm progressing as, as, as like in a throwing program, but as far as day-to-day stuff, it's it's a non-issue anymore. So should we get the obligatory, what's your timetable question that you're probably sick of answering out of the way? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also the one that I, that I will 100% refuse to answer because I made the mistake of telling people that I was going to throw a bullpen. I was going to throw a bullpen today and I wasn't, I'm not quite to the point where I can throw a bullpen and it turned into, I had a setback and my career is over. And it was basically just, <laughs> I haven't gotten to that point. And, you know, it, it's hard. They, they did a lot of work. They did more work than they thought. They had to leave some stuff that they couldn't fix. Dr. Latrosh did a great job and he did everything that he could. There was just stuff that it was, I mean, if you want to do the full repair on everything, I was out 18 months and I'm not, I'm at a point in my career where I don't have 18 months to wait. So we went with as much as he could do where I could still come back. I, I mean, I'm, I'll pitch this year. I have no doubt that I'll pitch this year. I have no doubt that I'll pitch at a successful level. My range of motion, strength, flexibility, all of those things are, are as good or better than they were before surgery. And so those are all positives. It's just building the arm strength has taken more time than I've wanted it to. And I mean, that's just, you kind of just roll with it. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a surgery that a lot of guys recover fully from. And hopefully I'm in the minority uh, as far as, one of the guys that does recover, you know, it's going to take time. That's all I can really offer. And, and, and the truth is, I don't know. I don't know a timetable because I don't know how I'm supposed to respond. I don't know how I'm going to feel in a week or a month or six months. So mm-hmm. hopefully it's sooner than later, but I mean, I'm able to, to go out and play catch and feel good. And I just, I haven't progressed to the point yet where I have to throw a bullpen where I can throw a bullpen and it's going to come. It's going to take a few more days and I'm, I'm almost eight months out. And, you know, for the seven and a half months that I've been rehabbing, every day that I've gone to the field, I've been able to check off the box of like, I did everything that was on the, on the schedule for that day. I had no issues doing it. And yet, and today was the first day where I wasn't able to check a box, which I think is pretty good. Mm-hmm. So it's a tough recovery and it's gone well so far. I don't want to call it a setback. I, it's a bump in the road and we'll get over the bump and, and keep pushing on. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about the phenomenon of fans questioning players commitment or fortitude. You know, I was, I was looking at your, your Twitter and it didn't take much searching to find people tweeting things at you about, you know, like how serious is this guy about coming back or is he working hard enough or is he, you know, not willing to play through pain or whatever. And I don't know whether this is a, a Minnesota thing. I know there are columnists up there 
who've questioned, you know, Joe Maurer's toughness. And it's like, mm-hmm. you know, the guy had a head injury. It's pretty serious. Yeah. He shouldn't be catching. So you get these kind of armchair medical people who are questioning whether the player really wants to come back. And leaning on the contract for like really trivial amounts of money in like grand scheme of baseball terms, too. Right. Yeah. And I, yeah. I'd imagine that like you haven't pitched in games since April and it's been tough. You've had a surgery. You've had to come back from that. You've had the frustration of not playing. And then added to that is sort of the frustration of people questioning whether you are trying hard enough. Yeah. Well, and, and as far as last year goes, like I said, I mean, I, tr- I feel truly horrible. Terry Ryan invests a lot of money in me and a lot of confidence and faith. And I 100% feel like I stole the money last year. Now, have I earned the money that I've been paid in my career? I have. I know how wins above replacement works. I know how dollars per war works. I know all of that stuff. I understand that I've made way more of a contribution than the money I've been paid. So I can sleep at night. Mm-hmm. The fact is, though, that I feel bad that I was collecting paychecks last year and not playing baseball. If I, whether I'm good or bad, at least if I could take the ball and go out there. I mean, even my second half of 2015, I was terrible, but I was taking the ball. I was going out there. I was making it. I was doing everything I could. And, and that being said... I've been down in Florida for essentially now six weeks away from my family committing to rehabbing. Anyone that would question my commitment, I think is way off base and and boring on insane. Just because if I didn't care, if I didn't want to come back, I would have just rehabbed in Minnesota. I mean, I I get to pick where I want to go. I'm choosing to be down here away from the family, away from my kids, away from everything that I love in Minnesota and doing my rehab here. So I think the commitment on my end, I mean, I've committed, I think, more and harder than a lot of guys would, to be honest with you. I mean, there's been other major league guys that have a long chapter of success and big league time that wouldn't rehab in Florida. Like, they would rehab at home because they wanted to be home. And I want to be home, but I think this is the best situation for me and for my rehab and to come back successfully and, and, and pay back what they have bestowed on me and as far as dollars and faith and all those things like i said it's for someone to question my commitment is i i I hate to even acknowledge it but there's there's occasions where i have to like you know think about what i'm doing i'm down here instead of i could i could be at home until we report on wednesday i could be home till wednesday and i've chosen to be down here because i feel like it's the best opportunity for me to, to earn the money that I'm being paid. So we wanted to talk to you in part because you wrote the foreword for the Baseball Prospectus Annual, which Michael and I have both contributed to in the past. So that was cool to see. But of course, you've had a, a reputation as a sort of stat savvy player for a while now. And you write in the foreword about how you came to care and learn about all of these things. And that the first time you came across Baseball Prospectus and fielding independent pitching was when you were writing Pretty high. In 2009, you were coming off a good year, at least by a win-loss record. You were still a starting pitcher at that point, and then you get off to a good start in 2009, but the peripherals weren't there. The strikeout rate wasn't there. It was just sort of a, a fluky thing, I guess. And at the time, were you receptive to that when you come across an article saying that what you're doing is unsustainable? Are you immediately kind of reflexively saying that's nonsense? I, you know, I, I have been good. I deserve my success. Did you embrace that right away or did it take until essentially things started falling apart for you to realize that maybe there was something to that? You know, I'm inquisitive by nature, which is why I, I, why I got into that from the start. And, and also I have a love of math. I mean, I, had baseball not worked out, my plan was to be a math teacher. So I've always had an affinity for numbers and, and those things. And 
when I saw that, I guess my first reaction, it wasn't what I think most players would see when they say that when they, when they see that. I, and I feel like in a clubhouse, the guys that like sabermetrics are the guys that sabermetrics favor them. And the guys that don't are the ones where they read something and it's unfavorable to them. And they say, uh-huh. that this is, this is BS. I don't believe that. That's a bunch of crap. And when I saw it, I thought, well, what the hell are they talking about? I don't know what any of this stuff is, but I want to know. And I want to know why. And I want to know if I, at this point, can do anything. If it, you know, how do I go about improving on those things? And, and I had no idea about control and what a pitcher control, what a pitcher can't. I mean, I, from a young age, learned to get ahead of hitters and not walk hitters. And in high school and college, struck out lots of hitters. I just, as I climbed the ladder and that pyramid gets smaller and smaller when you, when you move up, it became harder. And I think I got away from trying to strike hitters out. And frankly, the, our organization's philosophy at the time was get hitters out. I think at that time it was four pitches or less. I mean, we had this whole chart of like how to get guys out, how to get them out quick, how many pitches you should throw counts that, that we had that do this and this count and this and that count. So, so I was doing those things and got away from trying to strike guys out, trying to induce weak contact, the things that favor a pitcher. So when I saw that for the first time and somebody said it was unsustainable, I thought, you know, why is it? I want to learn why it is. And it, it took me a year and a half or so to be able to implement like the plan correctly. Part of that was regaining health, velocity, moving from a, throwing a curveball to a slider. There was a multitude of things that I had to, to learn and figure out and practice, but I was receptive to it from the start. I didn't think this is bullshit. These guys are idiots that live in their mom's basement, blah, blah, that everybody says that hates <laughs> right. analytics. To me, it was, these are smart people saying this stuff. They have, there's basis, there's, there's numbers, there's things that support it. There's history that supports it. I need to learn about that. And I want to learn about that. I think I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm rare in that sense where I think most guys that were in my situation in 2009 would have blown it off. Mm-hmm. The funny thing is, is it's true. I mean, it's, it's, there's no doubt 100% that it's true. And, and, and my career and, and the way I changed my pitching style is 100% proof of that. And so I didn't blow it off. I wanted to learn more. And, and that's just how I am. I mean, when I get into something, when I get into a book or I get into a, something like that, I want to, you know, I finish that stuff. I get addicted to it. I get hooked on it and I read everything I can. I learn everything I can. And, and then it helps me form an opinion and it's decision on what I want to do, whether it's life or baseball or fishing or anything. I mean, any of my hobbies or anything, I I tend to go all in and become obsessed. And that's what I did with stats. Some of the stuff that you talked about, fear of numbers, fear of people you don't know telling you that you're wrong, like that's not exclusive to athletes because, you know, around the same time, you know, I was getting into arguments with a lot of other Phillies fans about Cole Hamels. You know, he had a a bad, won the World Series MVP in 08 and then had a bad year in 09 based mostly on bad, bad at ball luck. And one thing I found is if you lead with the acronyms and the numbers, it turns people off. But like a lot of the underlying concepts just sort of make intuitive sense. Like if you say he's just having a lot of balls fall in rather than saying his BABIP's gone up, you know, 75, 80 points, then, you know, you'll, you'll get a little bit more traction. So that's, I thought it was interesting that you, you led with not the numbers or the stats, but the phrase, this isn't sustainable. So are you finding yourself like thinking in terms of concepts instead of numbers when you're trying to explain this to, to your teammates? Yeah. I mean, that's a thing that, that you can relate a lot of what's in baseball and moves that managers make and, and the way pitchers pitch and guys having hits fall in, like doing things that make you successful because our season is so long. It's a lot like blackjack to me where like you don't hit when you have more than 17 because over the course of time, like everyone understands how to play blackjack. 
everybody does. You get to this number, you know, you have a, you have a 16 and the dealer has a 10 showing you hit because the chances are that he's got a 10 and he's because there's the most tens, right? And so it's a lot the same way where, where you give yourself in blackjack the best chance to win over the course of time. You might get lucky. Hey, I'm going to hit the 17 and I got a four. So I have 21 and I beat a wall. That's not going to happen, but once or twice in a night. So do what gives you the best chance to win over the longest course of time. And, and, and baseball provides a very long sample size over a course of the season. So you, even if you're doing something that 51% of the time, it's the right thing to do, do that because it's going it, to, there's, there are times that it's not, nothing is a hundred percent, nothing in blackjack, nothing in gambling, nothing in sports is a hundred percent. But if you, if you can just swing it into your favor or get as close to it being in your favor in the, in the case of blackjack, that's the way you have to play. And so it's not like a, well, this works 95% of the time. So you have to do it. No, it's, if it works 55% or 60% over the course of the year, that that's what you need to do. So, so for me, it's just, it's those odds and it's those doing those things that, that like lower a fit, like, like strike guys out, don't walk guys induce weak context. You don't give up home runs. Like, like those things over the course of time. Yes. You're going to make a good pitch and a guy's going to hit a home run. You know what? That pitch is going to get hit for a home run one and a half percent of the time or 5% of the time or 20% of the time, even if it's that, like you're still coming out ahead in the end. And that's the thing that you have to convince guys. Like, like that's the sustainability thing is as long as it favors you in, in more than half of the, the opportunities, you come out ahead. I mean, that, that, that's the basis of the whole thing. And so in other sports, maybe where the seasons aren't as long, or you don't play as many games, it doesn't work in quite the same way, but baseball has a way of evening itself out. I mean, that's the thing where hits fall in or, or the line drive gets caught. Like, you know, you hit that ball 110 miles an hour, but it goes right to the shortstop. Well, you're going to, you're going to get jammed and you're going to pop one over first base and get a double. Like that, those things even out, but over the course of the season, if you're doing things the correct way, if you're working toward your goal of lowering your FIP or having a low FIP, you're going to end up evening out. And it took a long time for people, A, to figure it out, and it's taken longer for people to buy in. But there's no doubt that those numbers, those formulas, and then the sustainability factors that it factors in in the end, that you have to do those things. And then that's how over the course of the season, you're going to have success. You might give up a couple runs early in the season on bad luck, but it really might have a 70 area after April, but a two fit. Well, guess what? At the end of the season, if he's got a two fit, his area is going to be damn near two. And, and that's just because those things, those unlucky events even out. And, and you, you have to take that out of the equation and just continue to do the things that you need to do to maintain success or to sustain success. With most guys, I don't know that they could necessarily do anything to change their fate. Even if they see it coming, they might see a high FIP. That doesn't necessarily mean that they can go out and start striking out more guys or giving up fewer homers. They might just be stuck with their, their lot in life. So, well, you might be a bad player, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you might be a bad right. Player, but so. that's also then that that's, I, and honestly, like the way I started striking guys out, I, I, I just talked to a guy in our organization the other day about how I ended up striking guys out. And then as I went along, this is 2011, 12, when I started striking out, you know, 10, 11, 12 guys per nine, I stumbled upon it by accident that I just realized through pitching that like guys couldn't hit a fastball up in the zone from me uh -huh. throwing it. Well, it turns out that in those years, I had a higher spin rate on my fastball. So it just worked. 
I wasn't the guy that like drive the ball down in the zone because my ball stayed on plane. So throw the ball up. I knew what I was doing. I knew, Hey, you know what? I'm having success throwing fastballs up and sliders down. I didn't know why until like two or three years ago where it was like when spin rate started being a thing. But then that's when you realize that in hindsight, this is why it worked. I thought it was just, I was throwing 97 miles an hour and guys couldn't catch up to it. Well, it was because it was spinning crazy fast and staying on plane. So guys swung under it. Like I knew what I was doing, but I didn't know why it was working other than just where I was putting it. But there was more factors involved that as time goes on, I learned. Mm-hmm. How many of those breakthrough moments are accidental as, as opposed to is something that you research and, you know, we talked to Craig Breslow last week and he put a ton of research into changing his arm slot. You just found that throwing your fastball high works. So how many breakthrough moments are accidental versus months of preparation and planning? I think in, in that way, I was ahead of the curve of where spin rate wasn't really being recorded. I think even like pitch FX was a little bit iffy. I mean, there was a long time where pitch FX was classifying by slider as a changeup. So like it wasn't fine tuned enough. Like their algorithms weren't good enough to like tell you exactly what you're doing and to be able to look into it that deep. And, and at that point, nobody was talking about spin rate. I think spin rate's a, a fairly recent thing. I think from here going forward, teams are going to know. Like, I mean, I know the Twins have put TrackMan now in every park that we have all the way down to uh, low A. And so they're going to know, they're going to be able to see, this is a low spin guy, throw the ball down on his own, work down on his own. This is a high spin guy. Let's not throw fastballs at the knees. We don't need to do that. We need to pitch in the top half or top third of the zone to above. And so I don't think it's going to be as accidental from here going forward. But when I made my adjustments, that that stuff I don't think was quite available. And if it was, I didn't find it. And there was obviously nobody telling me any of this. I mean, I was on my own with all of that stuff, with, with release points and the path the ball was taking the home plate, all those things. I was showing other guys. I was printing stuff off of like Brooks baseball, showing guys like your release point on this, your release point on that, or like your pitch tunnel where like you had a bad start, your balls were breaking early today, or you had a good start. Like look at how late your slider and your changeup and your fastball were breaking. Like they traveled for 40 feet or 35 feet before they started breaking. Like the guys can't pick it up like that. You know, and then, then your release point, hey, your release point on your breaking balls and your fastball was the same. Like, that's why they couldn't tell tonight. Like, I was way ahead of the curve on that stuff as far as printing stuff off and, like, bringing it to the guys and showing it in the clubhouse. This is what you're doing and holding it up. You know, you print the thing off the page and you hold it up to a light and you can see everything, like, from this start and that start. And now it, that stuff's a lot more prevalent in clubhouses and even coaches and, and managers that are, are implementing that stuff to guys where when I started doing it, that stuff wasn't available. And I remember showing umpire strike zones to like our coaches on the bus home from the game. Like this, look at how bad this ump was tonight. Like he missed these seven pitches that should have been called strikes. And like, they were looking at Brooks baseball on my phone, like, holy crap, they do this stuff. So <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a lot more prevalent. And if we were behind, which we were probably a little bit, everyone in our clubhouse knows about that stuff. Now they know about heat maps. They know about zones, like strike zones, where pitchers throw all those things. There's not as many secrets in that stuff. When I started doing it, I stumbled on it accidentally. I threw pitches and they worked. And so I kept throwing them, which is common sense. But you, you know, you, you play catch with a guy or you see a guy pitch and like, Oh, his ball's jumping. Like that's high spin. You know, his ball's really heavy. That's low spin. Like there's things like that where it's once you realize what they're talking about or what they're saying or why it's doing it, like then it makes sense. But those things, guys are going to learn a lot early in their careers and be able to come up and be ready to do what they need to do, know where to pitch, know how to pitch, the zones that they should pitch in where I frankly stumbled upon that stuff and just got lucky. And you wrote about this breakthrough moment where you're out on the water in Costa Rica with some teammates and somehow sabermetrics comes up and suddenly you're holding court and people are actually interested. How did that come about? You know, I, I used to talk to Michael Kadire a lot in the outfield and we had these arguments and conversations 
conversations and we had a bunch of fun talking about stats. He's an old school guy. And I was telling him all these things about batting every balls in play and all those simple things that, that are common sense now that he was having trouble understanding. And, and I remember distinctly one, one conversation I had was about walks and, he, and on base percentage. I said, if you have a guy that walks every time he comes to the plate for an entire season, he's the most valuable player in the game. Like he uh-huh. never makes an out all year. That's the most valuable player. And he didn't, he couldn't cover that. And, and the natural reaction for him and for a lot of people that don't buy into analytics is creating a scenario where it's going to favor them. And then my comeback was, well, you know, if it's a tie game in the bottom of the ninth, there's two outs and you have to walk, you know, we use Jim Tomey as the example. I said, you have to walk Jim in that situation. You, you, you lose the game. Like I said, if you want to make a scenario where it's this, that, and the other thing to prove your point, then I'm going to go the other way. And so I, I started to get into a little bit and he was on that trip in, in Costa Rica. It was, it was with Nike baseball. We were kind of having the same conversation. We were on a catamaran and then a whole bunch of other guys just started kind of crowding around because we were talking about it and joking and having a good conversation about it. I, I ended up explaining like the basis of war to like 10 guys that are like super good baseball players. And they, I mean, like I said earlier, they, they bought in probably because it favored them. Like we looked up like, Matt Carpenter, I'm like, Carp, like you're actually a really good player in war too. Like it's, it's fine. Like you can like analytics, like you get on base a ton. You, uh, you know, you feel well, you run the bases really well. Like, like you're actually a really good sabermetric player. So it's cool for you to like it. So all these guys started thinking like, damn, like I didn't know that's how it worked. I think they just didn't get the concept of what it was. And again, it favored them. It benefited them. So they're like, okay, yeah, this is kind of neat. So it was uh, it was pretty cool. There was some crustier, older veteran guys, and, and they were all like, it just didn't know what it was about. And and mm-hmm. baseball is so resistant to change and adaptation that you know these guys they they think that they just hit three hundred and it's all good. And you know there's a hollow three hundred, a bad three hundred, and and then there's really good three hundreds. But it was really cool to kind of break through and like talk to these guys and like like look, it's okay to like know what this stuff means to think that maybe there's some value behind it and. A lot of the guys, I mean, like Matt Carpenter being an example, like your organization, basically like the reason you got paid $60 million is because of that. Like they were able to project, like, this is what he's going to do for the next six years. Like he's worth 25 million a year, but we're going to pay him 10. Like Mm -hmm. that's why you like the the reason you're rich is because this team saw that, like you're actually more valuable than, than meets the eye. It was a really cool moment for me to, to just like have some validation of like where guys are like, damn, like that's pretty neat. Well, so maybe it's tough for you to be impartial about this because you've been a closer and you've gotten saves and you've probably made money because of it. But where do you stand on the whole reliever closer usage debate, valuation debate? Do we give closers full credit for the fact that they're pitching at very important parts of the game or do you discount it because, well, any pitcher would be pitching at that point in the game and he'd be getting credit based on win probability added, et cetera. So how do you approach that? And if you had no health restrictions or anything, how would you say that you would want to be used or that a team should use you if it wanted to make the most of you? I tell you, that's where I veer away from the analytic crowd. Uh-huh. I, and, and I think it's because I've been there. We're swinging back a little bit, though. I've <laughs> yeah. done every I've, I've pitched in every role that a pitcher can pitch in. I've, I've been yeah. a starter. I've been a middle reliever. I've been a seventh inning guy, an eighth inning guy, a ninth inning guy. And there is, I don't want to say that there's something different from the ninth to like the eighth, but like, there's also something to where a guy, you truthfully have to know when you're going to pitch to be able to prepare 
for an inning, the, the mental capacity that it takes to go out there in, in the situation, the pressure, and then just how your routine works. Because baseball, like I said, it's 162 games. It's so routine-based. You need to have your routine. You, that's why there was good pinch hitters. That's why there's good DHs. That's why there's bad pinch hitters and bad DHs. Like, those guys have a routine for even when they come up to bat and know what they do in between at bats when they're not out in the field. And, and when you're a pitcher, being able to prepare for a scenario or a situation you can't have like four or five guys that you say, all right, you need to be ready from the sixth inning on and, and then uh-huh. be able to go out and you want to be able to set the whole thing up. I think you can get through the seventh. And then I think that when you get beyond there, then then you need to have a guy that he knows he's going in. And then your ninth inning guy, he knows he's going in because there's just, there's a different feel for when you walk out on that mound, when you run out on that field and it's the eighth and then it's the ninth. I've done the eighth inning when I'm healthy. I did the eighth inning when I got hurt and came back. And going out there for the ninth thing, it, it, it's a different feel. It's a hundred percent different feel. You have to be on that field. You have to be in those situations to understand that they're now, do I say that, that no, like, it's like you're born a closer. Absolutely not. 99% of relievers are field starters and a hundred percent of closers are guys that climb the ladder. Like you just, you get put in situations, you get out of them, you, you get comfortable in spots of pressure. But I, I don't think that closers are like, born. I I think they're made. They're all made. You work through all the the difficult situations and scenarios and frankly, having to be ready from the fifth inning to the seventh inning, like I did in 2011, where I was a long guy and it's like, all right, you know, like I might have to go in the game at any point now, but you cannot take a guy one night and throw him in the seventh and the next night, throw him in the ninth and the guy that threw in the ninth, throw him in the seventh and the guy that threw in the eighth, throw him in the sixth. You can't jumble guys around. You need to have time to repair. You need to be able to mentally repair. You you need to not have a guy that's sitting down in the bullpen on edge for three innings and have him go in. Closed by committees have never worked. You can do like the Andrew Miller thing last year in the playoffs because the, that intensity turns up. I mean, I'm sure he felt like when he went in, in the sixth inning in the World Series, he probably felt like it was the ninth inning in Yankee Stadium three months ago because the intensity, all the pressure that it, everything gets turned up to, to 11. But doing what he did over the long haul, not possible. Jumping guys around, jumbling them around, throwing them here, throwing them there. It, it just, there's something about it that guys need to know when they're going in and you benefit from it. You, you absolutely do. Once you get to the eighth, I think the eighth and ninth are, are pretty damn similar, but you just can't have a guy for this inning, for that inning, for here and there. And, and the other problem is that then you're going to end up using, like if they use Miller that way, just for example, he's going to throw 250 innings next year because it's, oh, crap, we need to get it out in the sixth. And he's going to be throwing, you know, 120 games and throwing 210 innings. And obviously that's not feasible. I mean, I think the save is a stupid stat, but mm-hmm. you also can't, all right, this is a situation in the seventh, and so we're going to bring in our best reliever now. And then the next day, all right, well, we didn't get there, so A, maybe he's not going to pitch, or B, he'll, we'll have him just throw the ninth, because then he's getting ready for the seventh thing, all right, I might go in, and then it's your adrenaline goes up, your adrenaline goes down, it goes back up, it goes back down. Mm-hmm. That doesn't work over the long term. So that's, I mean, and I know Brian Kenny's big on that, just like the, the relief ace, and just, just put him out mm-hmm. there whenever you want. Like, we're not robots. Really not like on paper. And I think that's the only thing where I veer from analytics is like you put things on paper and they work. Well, you can't put emotion on paper and there's no pitcher in, in baseball will tell you that, that the emotion doesn't change as, as the innings change for somebody to say that, that anybody can do it in any situation that you, that we're just numbers or we're just, you can run a win probability at it or a linear weight and say, this guy did it here. He can do it there. It doesn't work like that. 
All right. I want to end by changing gears, maybe not quite as much as it sounds like, because we're still talking about the the ninth inning closer aura. But you had when last you played probably my favorite closer entrance music ever. Johnny Cash's God's Gonna Cut You Down. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. And I think the the only problem with this is it's so good that everybody's using it. Like Cody Allen's used it, Drew Storen's used it, Miller's used it. So having had the year away from the big league game, are you reevaluating your your entrance music at all? Man, I don't. I've changed so many times. Our owner's son picked that for me, who runs our like radio station. Joe Paul had picked that because I said, you know what, I've, I've been changing like three times a year. Just pick me something. I was the first one to use it. I will say that I absolutely the first person to come up to that song. Yeah. So I think everyone else stole the idea for me because it was sweet. I mean, I had flames on the scoreboard and, and I, it's I, they so good. Like, like you're walking city. in, it's, like you're walking in, perfect. like walking away from an explosion, you know, with sunglasses yeah. and it's absolutely, yeah. it's absolutely perfect. And that's why, that's why other guys, I'm sure we were playing them. They're like, Holy crap, this is sweet. I'm going to do that at my stadium. I don't know. I, I guess I haven't gotten there yet. I might need to find like a redemption song or like a, Rising from the Phoenix or something. I don't know, but I like that song. It's a great song and it's badass the way you do it at Target Field. So I would think that it's probably going to stay just because, like I said, I, I changed so many times that then I finally had something for like two years and uh, it was good. It was really good. All right. Well, we hope you get back soon, not only to get back on a, on a major league mound, but also because Breslow is coming for your corner as the, the most <laughs> stat savvy guy in the Twins clubhouse. So you have to be back to defend your turf. Uh, we'll have some good conversations this spring, I'm sure. Yeah. So we hope the, the rest of the rehab goes well and that we see you pitching again sometime soon. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate you guys. Thank you. Okay, so that will do it for today. The offseason, I suppose, is technically over in a sense if you count players reporting to spring training as the end of the offseason, which you probably shouldn't because it's kind of anticlimactic. It's nice for, for a day. Again, the college regular season is starting on Friday. So oh, yeah, we're all excited. Good. Yeah, if you need a, a fix of actual games, I guess that's the way to go. Mm-hmm. So we will talk to you all next Monday. 